First Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, as I already said, we introduced the series on how to, how to do church. And uh, one of the things that we said then was that we're not talking about how to do Sunday morning service. That's not perspective that we're looking at here. It's not the all of what church is. We think of that sometimes as this this is the church. But what we're talking about is how do we how do we live as the church? How do we operate as the church? Um, Just just recently I was with someone who who we were interacting and he he was talking to me and partly I, I understand that people try to find common ground with me sometimes, and one of the things that he was talking about was something that he was doing in his church and a task force that he'd been put on in his church. And the task force that he'd been put on was creation care. In other words, they established a task force in his particular denomination about how to do creation care. At first I thought he meant about what they believe about creation But that wasn't what it was. It was more narrow than that in the sense that it was creation care. In other words, how do we be good environmentalists? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. We need to to be stewards of our environment. But I'm just not convinced that the church ought to be establishing task force to do that. That seems a level at which something else ought to be established as far as task force. And I think that's why Paul gives the admonition in the scriptures that we're to guard the deposit. It seems task force level things ought to be about the deposit. When we introduced this last week, we, uh, we asked you just to give a one-word description in various classes of what, when, when the word church comes to mind, what you think of it. What word comes to your mind in your very first church you remember being a part of What comes to your mind? There were three questions. One, how old are you? How long have you been at Richland most of your life or all of your life? Um, And and in rare cases, we have a few that answered yes, but very rare cases. And then finally, what one word would describe the first church you remember being a part of? Let me me share a few more of those as we start. First of all, one word that comes to mind to this person, and and some of these are teens now. This would be a group of young people, uh, less than age 20. Tall, exciting, long, people, family, brown or tan. Um, This is an interesting one. 
Laura and Sherry. Sunday school classes and clubhouse classes. Relaxing to my heart. A pastor's voice. Light blue. Donut holes. Lunch. Community. Boring. Uncomfortable. These are adults now. Big. My grandmother. Laws and rules. Strict. We'll have some more again later. Maybe if you haven't filled that out, you still can. There's a box in the foyer. If you want to do your description, you can place it there and uh, we'll hear what it is later. Let me, let me go back a bit to last week and then we're going to move on into the text that we have this morning. Um, we're looking for you that are new here this morning and weren't here last week. You can certainly get it on the, on the web. But let me just lay a little bit of a foundation here, reiterate what we talked about last week, and then we're going to move from there. We're looking at the three pastoral epistles, First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, which are called the pastoral epistles uh, because they were letters written to pastors, not just for them alone, but to be read to the churches, but, but about pastoral care, about, about pastoring churches. And caring for churches. And the overarching banner over all three of those books that we said were texts that come out of both First and Second Timothy. And if you look at First Timothy, the last chapter, and you find in verse uh, 20 these words, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then if you go into chapter 1 of Second Timothy, it says it this way, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So in both of those letters, Paul writes to Timothy to guard the deposit. And one of the ways we talked about that was the deposit is the gospel. That's what he's talking about guarding. So you could say that, that the banner over which Paul would, would put over all of those books, his theme, his passion, his reason would be to guard the truth that leads to life. Because that's what the gospel leads to. It leads to life. The stakes are high. And so Paul knew that it needed to be guarded. Uh, One of the things about that gospel, and we've already said it last week, but it was entrusted to them. It wasn't something they were to add to or, or subtract from. They were just to guard the deposit. It was given to them. It's been given to us. And, and we're to care for it and make sure that we don't distort that message. Um, there's another text that I meant to read last week that I didn't read in First Timothy that even narrows the whole idea of how to do church down a bit more. If you turn to chapter 3 and verse 14, look there. This is, this is really in, in this book, which, which I think is, is over all of the books, but primarily he says it right here in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. Paul's writing. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, and, and then he tells why. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So again, how to do, how to do this. Now, I may be wired different than you are, but I doubt it. Um, I hope sometimes you just, you just stop in the midst of what you're doing, even on Sunday morning, and think about what you're doing. I have that happen. I have that happen oftentimes as I come to the church on Sunday mornings. I just stop and think, 
Now, what are we going to do here? Now, again, that's not all of church. Corporate worship is just a segment and a slice of it. But even that, I stop sometimes and think, okay, here's what we're going to do this morning. And I just stop to think about it a minute. What, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to lead these people in? How is it going to be structured? And why do we do this? Sometimes we just need to get outside of ourselves and ask that. So, so what I'm asking for us to do is get outside of ourselves a little bit and just look on Richland and say, what's this all about? What, what does Scripture teach us about what this is about? And how well are we lining up with what Scripture says about that? How well are we doing that? And that's what my hope is for this. There are... Uh, there are a number of things that we will talk about. It's interesting to me that there aren't very many themes in these books. In other words, there aren't very many specific things that you're given in this book. You will not find an order of service in these books about how to do corporate worship. It's, it's amazing to me. There's only, only about four or five themes that are in there. And these are the themes that we will talk about. One of the things doing church is about is, is, is guarding doctrine. Guarding the deposit, guarding the truth. So how is the church supposed to guard that truth? How are, how are they to make sure that that truth stays the truth from generation to generation to generation and doesn't get distorted, which is no small task. I said last week that one of the things Dave is doing in his Sunday school class is, is going back and looking at church history. And, and it, will, it will be an eye-opener to you if you've never done that, if you're a part of that class, to see how the church, how God used the church to, to keep that which was entrusted to them the same message all down through the centuries. Because there were lots of things that came against that, trying to change that entrusted message, even ever so slightly change it. And the battles that were fought to not allow that to happen. So it, it's about doctrine. How do we keep the message? The message. Secondly, it talks a lot about leadership. It talks a lot about leadership. We will talk a lot about leadership over these days. Um, I, I, there, there's a, a new phenomena happening in the church world today um, that, that we wouldn't even have thought of happening as far as church, how churches operate. Um, even, even ten years ago, probably would not have imagined what has happened. Probably less years than that, really. But there's a, there's a movement now to multi-siting churches. In other words, um, what's happened in, in larger churches, they've gotten larger and larger, and they realize we just can't keep building buildings. And so we're going to multi-site. We're going to find other locations for the church to gather. And so, so one church will gather in multiple sites. And in some cases, they will have somebody in a, in a, in a live sense teaching there in that gathering. In other cases, they will just do it by, via, via video message. Sometimes live. Sometimes the video is just broadcast live in another location. Sometimes it's taped. And, and so you have to ask the question, where is that in Scripture? It's not. So how, how do you make decisions? How do you decide whether it's right or wrong? How do you 
do all of that? How do you, as, as technology changes and all those things, how do you do it? How do you wrestle through that? One of the things that I'm coming to see in these texts is it, it doesn't give you specifics about that. What it gives you specifics about is the people who lead churches and, and the responsibility upon them to deal with specifics. That's a, that's a powerful thing. It, it says, raise up godly leaders, elders in every location in all of these places who then will be given the responsibility to decide some of those specifics, which is no small responsibility. That's why it says, be careful who you appoint. Um, it talks about personal godliness in these books, the, the way that gives validation to the uh, deposit, our lives and what our lives look like. It talks about the mission of the, of the church, the, the overall big picture mission of the church. What, what are we about? Is it about creating task force for creation care? Or what is it about? What is the mission of the church? And, and how can we do good things but not the best thing and, and get ourselves in trouble? Not wrong things, just not the thing we ought to be doing. So we will talk about mission. So those four basic areas we will come to. Doctrine, leadership, um, personal godliness, and mission. We'll talk about those themes as we go along. Uh, one of the things I did not say, which is interesting, just, just I think just to put under your hat as we walk through this, is Timothy was ministering in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very wealthy and a very intellectual city. Now, as, as you read those words to Timothy and how he's to lead the church, put it in that context. He, he, Timothy was dealing with a wealthy, very intellectual group in his day in Ephesus. I think that has some significance to some of the ways Paul speaks and some of the things he says. Now, the next four weeks, here's where we're going to go. Uh, this series will go longer than that, but for the next four weeks, to give you a picture, including today, for these two Sundays, we're going to we're going to specifically look at what the title says in the bulletin: seeing the the glory or the beauty of the uh, deposit. I think we have to start there. If if we do not see the beauty of that deposit, it will it will create problems. You cannot not start there. So for two weeks. We're going to look at really the text we read this morning and, and look at that and make sure that we're seeing it the way we ought to see it because you, you must see it in, in order to be willing to, to guard it as you should. And then the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of approach this from a bit of a, of a backdoor approach in, in talking about ways in which the church can kind of get off track or off message or get in trouble. So, so two weeks we'll talk about seeing the, the, the uh, glory and beauty of the deposit. And then we'll take a couple of weeks to, to talk about how the church can just plain flat get off track in a general sense. And then we'll move to more specifics, which are those four areas that we've talked about. And we won't, we're going to look at, the, at those books as a whole, so we'll We'll be in different sections of Scripture and, and tying different sections of those books together as we walk through this series on the church. Um, 
Today, we are in the text that was read. I'd like you to turn there. We're going to look at that. We're going to unpack that. And, and one of the things that I've already said to some degree is that you, you won't guard what you don't treasure. You won't. If you don't treasure it, you're not going to protect it like you should. And you won't treasure what you don't see as worthy of protecting. And so it's important that we see both of them, that we see it as a treasure, and a treasure that is valuable enough that it is worth protecting. It is worth not letting it get distorted. We must concentrate for a couple of weeks on seeing that, seeing the glory. And and really, sometimes that's a hard word to get your your mind around, the word glory. Um, A word that I think helps is the word beauty, the beauty of the gospel. Helping us to see that. That's exactly what Paul did in this text. He, he just takes some time in verses 12 through 17 to just, to just stop and, and reflect on the glory of the gospel as it applies to his own life. And so you begin to see why it was such, such a passion for him to protect it because it was so valuable to him. Now, to, to set this up for the next couple of weeks, I want to I do this. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about at Richland, and one of the things that we try to do, in fact, one of the things that will happen at this men's retreat, is that we will ask some of you, and, and Troy will do the same thing actually on Thursday night, we'll, we'll ask them to just basically share their story, which is really their testimony of of coming to, to see the glory or the beauty of this treasure. That's, that's really, I think, a significant thing in the life of the church, to just hear somebody's story of how God opened their eyes to see that. But that, that creates a bit of a, of a problem sometimes with people. I think it causes two things can happen if you, if you don't understand that whole idea of testimony correctly. One of the things is, if we're not careful, and we don't, and we don't as, as, even as leaders, guard this a bit, is when you start to, to talk about testimony, there, there's some people who will take testimony to, to almost become a platform to talk about themselves in that testimony. In other words, it's, it's the kind of mentality, some people fall off the, 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 the side of the road on the side of, I'm really doing God a favor being in his kingdom. That kind of, that's an extreme statement. But God is really lucky to have me. There's some people, if we're not careful, if we don't help them to understand what what this is about, testimony is about how God has opened your eyes to see the treasure and the beauty of Christ, you you will cause them to move toward that kind of a mentality that God is pretty fortunate to have me in his kingdom. I'm pretty beneficial to him. Now, they wouldn't say that, but they kind of do say that sometimes. If and, and oftentimes what happens is in that kind of a, a movement, we will end up seeing people like that eventually shipwrecked. And we wonder, what happened? It's fundamentally a misunderstanding of, of the kinds of things we're going to talk about here. But there's another side of the road you can fall off on. The other side of the road to fall off on that is, is, is there probably some here who would say, I don't have much of a testimony. You would profess to be a believer. 
but you would say, I don't have very much of a testimony. Why does that happen? Why are we tempted to say that? We talked about this a while back in my Sunday school class. Why, why are sometimes we tempted to do that? Well, I think it's an equal error. It's, it's, just, it's, it, it's just in the long run as dangerous in some ways as the person who thinks that God's pretty fortunate to have them. It's a misunderstanding of texts like this, I think. A misunderstanding of a couple of things that I think the Apostle Paul nails in this this little excerpt that he gives to us. Two things that were fundamentally a part of the Apostle Paul's life that, that guarded him from either one of those two extremes as he told about his life. I mean, Paul said things like, follow me like I fo- as I follow Christ. I mean, he said some pretty straightforward statements like that. But it was not about God being lucky to have him, nor was it kind of an understanding that he didn't have much of a testimony. Because it there were two fundamental things that were a part of his life. And, and that's what I want to talk about here this morning. The first one is this. The first thing that guarded and protected Paul in his testimony, in when he would speak of, of Christ and what Christ meant to him and what Christ had done for him in his life, he fundamentally would, would begin always by a sense of being overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God. He was always overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of God. Uh, look at it in the text. Look at, look at some verses here. In verse 14 it says this, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The idea of overflowing kind of lavish grace that came on his life. In verse 16 he says, But I receive mercy uh, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, he had a sense of being the foremost, the worst of sinners. Paul had that 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 feeling here. Uh, if you go down in verse 15, in the heart of those two, in the middle of those two, it says, "This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners." And he goes on there again to say, "Of which I am the foremost." Go back with me now to maybe the temptation you have to say that I don't have any testimony. Be careful there. Be careful with that kind of statement. Because the Bible says this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think fundamentally sometimes the reason we don't have or think we have a testimony is, 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 a, is an understanding of sin in our lives. In fact, in Paul's case here where he says that I am the worst of sinners. Yeah, think about that a minute. I, I, don't think, I don't think you'd take that statement as Paul had checked everybody else out and he came to the conclusion, yep, I've done worse things than they have. I've done worse things than anybody else on the face of the earth. I mean, on a, on a pure literal sense of taking that statement, that's what he's saying. But I don't think that's what he's meaning. I don't think that's the meaning of what he's saying there. He hadn't checked everybody out. He couldn't have checked everybody out. He, he really doesn't know somebody else had done something he hadn't done. The, the thing that I think Paul is saying there is not that. What he's saying there is that I've, 
I've given up comparisons. And to be honest with you, when we really begin to see the glory and beauty of this message, of this deposit, of the gospel, it, it, we give up comparisons. Comparisons are incredibly dangerous. Comparisons cause us to make statements like, I don't have any testimony. Because you're comparing yourself. You're comparing yourself to somebody else who, who, and what happened in their life. It, it, it never should be the part of the Christian life. We aren't to make comparisons. It's not about somebody else. It's about me. It's about my heart. It's about seeing my heart. In, in one sense, we all should be able to say, I'm the worst sinner I know because I know my heart. And, and the degree to which we don't think we have a testimony, I fear it is we don't know our own hearts. We, we, we don't understand sin enough. We don't understand the intricacies of it in our own hearts. We, we kind of see sin as a surface level problem. But we don't see it going deep enough into our lives. I'm here to say that anybody, anybody who has been saved by the grace of God has a testimony. You have a testimony about how God took a heart that did not want to God, did not want God, did not seek God, and changed it. Everybody here, he came to save sinners. He came to save those who needed to be saved. The prerequisite is knowing you need to be saved. Now the problem comes when we're not so quite sure we need to be saved. We're not quite sure that we're in danger. I said that last week. We, we have a world that runs around and doesn't realize the danger they're in. A Christian worldview says to us that everybody outside of Christ is in dire danger. It was Jonathan Edwards who said they're hanging by a thread over judgment. And everyone outside of Christ is. And if you are no longer hanging by the thread, you have a testimony of God saving you. And showing you your sin. And showing you the danger. So I say to you this morning, Paul saw his sin. He saw the depths of his sin. It's interesting in this text, the saying is trustworthy and driven of full exception that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not to save those who had sinned, but sinners. To save those who who continue need to look at their heart and ask what's going on in their heart. But He saves them. He saves them. First of all, He was overwhelmed with the mercy and grace of God. You need, to, you need to begin there. You need to, if you're, if you're a believer, you need to be overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. Are you overwhelmed by that? Ask yourself this morning, did you wake up overwhelmed? Overwhelmed that you see. That was Paul's life because he knew what God had saved him from. Now, the second thing that I think protected him is this. That he saw that the initiative for mercy resides in the heart of God. The initiative to extend mercy resides in the heart of God. That's where it originates. If we get that wrong, we get lots of stuff wrong. 
If you don't realize that, that mercy originates in the heart of God, the mercy, if He's extended it to you, originated in His heart. There wasn't anything outside of Him that caused that thing to be, to be moved, but His heart. Um, again, if you get that wrong, if you get that wrong, it distorts everything. It creates all kinds of deadly things within the church. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. Listen to what he says. Just listen to the words that Paul quotes about God and what God said to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do we just run over that text? Mercy initiates in the heart of God. Now, let's look at the text. Hopefully, as I say that, you go back to the text. Look what it says. Here Paul says, But I receive mercy, in verse 13. Let's, let's start a little farther up. In verse 13 it says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I receive mercy because... I hope, I hope you wrestled with that because I have acted ignorantly in unbelief. So what's Paul saying? Is Paul saying that mercy originated in God seeing my ignorance? So that moved the heart of God to be merciful? Or does mercy originate in the heart of God? Does it start there? You see, you see that? That's important to wrestle with that. Is Paul saying, I, uh, I wasn't guilty and therefore God had mercy on me because of something in me? I don't think he's saying that. He, if he were, he wouldn't have started with, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul knew his sin. He wasn't innocent. He wasn't saying, I was innocent and therefore God had mercy on me. Again, mercy, I think Paul always knew, originated in the heart of God. Mercy comes from Him. Paul wasn't offering an excuse, a reason for God to be merciful. Um, in essence, what Paul wasn't doing was he was not defending, feeling a need to defend God. God doesn't need to be defended. Sometimes we want to defend God. We want to defend the fact that God would be angry and, and, and in one sense that God would put judgment on anyone. We want to say that God is just in that because, um, because of the actions of the person. And certainly he is innocent in it because of the actions of the person. But sometimes we want to, we want to tame God in that sense. The, the point that Paul would have always said is that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have gone their own way. Paul would have said, I'm in that boat as well. In other words, I wasn't a little less guilty because I did it innocently. That's not what he's saying there. That's not what, he, what he's trying to say. What he's keeping two things in tension is, is the two things that um, we must always keep in tension. That the initiative for mercy originates in the heart of God. And secondly, it is dangerous to presume on that mercy. It is incredibly dangerous to presume on the mercy of God as it can ultimately 
I think what Paul would say, it ultimately can put a person beyond repentance. Beyond the ability to repent. Beyond the ability to even want to repent. That's what he's saying in this text. Um, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't in the sense of knowingly, knowingly resisting Jesus who he knew was the Messiah. He didn't think Jesus was the Messiah, so he was acting ignorantly. But there's a dangerous thing for us here this morning. There's a dangerous thing for us who have more revelation where we hear about the glory and the beauty of Christ. We hear about it and we just continue to presume upon it. We just continue to ignore it and to push it away. Paul says, I wasn't like that. I wasn't pushing away something I thought was the truth. I wasn't ignoring something I thought was the truth. Was I not guilty because of that? No. Did I deserve judgment because of my guilt? Yes. But that's what he's saying. And what he's warning us, there's, t- there's tensions in Scripture that we must always let be there. And we dare not slice those tensions too, too thinly to try to reconcile those things. Scripture clearly teaches that the initiative for mercy resides in the heart of God. And it also teaches that you dare not ever presume on the mercy of God. It is a dangerous thing to do that. Let me just read a couple of texts to you this morning that would, would warn of that kind of a thing. The first one is in the book of, of uh, Romans chapter 2. Just let me read it to you. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 4 and 5. Listen to what it says. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a couple of other texts that are equally as, as, as ominous. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up contempt, Him to contempt. And then Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 26 and 27. Listen again. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, if we just keep on going with no, with no sense of repentance for our sin, after we begin to see Christ lifted up and we begin to see a bit of that glory and beauty, and we turn away from it. There is no sacrifice that remains. It's, that is the only sacrifice. If we don't turn to that sacrifice, if we don't acknowledge that mercy and that treasure, there's no place else to go. There's a warning in Scripture. There's a warning that always says mercy originates in the heart of God, but you dare not presume upon it. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. In, in that text when he gives that exclusion here. Now let me tell you why that's incredibly important. It's incredibly important that we see that no one deserves mercy. No one deserves it. None of us here deserve it. Mercy by definition is not something you deserve. Paul knew that. He didn't deserve it. 
But secondly, this. No one deserves it more than another, either. No one in this room deserves mercy more than another does. Because no one deserves it. We equally don't deserve it. We equally don't deserve God to be merciful because it it turns mercy on its head. It turns the mercy of God on its head. It is a man-centered view of mercy. God-centered view of mercy is it originates in the heart of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's what made the difference for Paul. That's, though it, it causes our minds to do gymnastics as we hear those things, it is what Scripture teaches. And the degree to which we don't get that, I think it leads to a self-righteous ugliness in our lives. It, it causes us to have trouble with te- things like testimonies, either to think we're doing God a favor. I am, I am a favor to God in the fact that He had saved me. Or that we think we have no testimony at all. When you see it sheer mercy in light of your sin that God would pour His favor upon you and cause your eyes to get open to see the, the beauty and the glory of Christ. The more and the greater degree to which you ask the question that Charles Wesley asked, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? The more you do that, the more you see that, the more you understand it initiates in the heart of God, the more healthy you will be and the more powerful your testimony will be to the grace of God. Salvation, and we'll talk about this more next week, is not about us. It's not about us ultimately. It's about God and His glory. We'll talk about that more. But the Scripture says... This is a saying is, is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. What, what is this testimony? What is this thing that deserves full acceptance, that needs to be broadcast everywhere? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hope. And I'm the foremost. Do you see that in your life? Do you sense that in your life? Do you understand your sin in your life? Do you understand your need of a Savior? There's nothing that God can be more gracious in showing us than our own hearts, our own need of a Savior. And the message that we're to protect, the message that we're to guard, is that message. And God help us to do that. Paul goes again in this text, and I close with this as Matthew's going to come and close us this morning. This statement in that particular book, he goes on another time and he iterates again the reason for God showing mercy to him. If you read down there in verse 16, it says, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is a different way he says it. God doesn't extend mercy to him because he saw something in Paul that moved his heart to be merciful. But he extended mercy to Paul so that you might know mercy is available to you. For those who would believe as they saw the mercy that came to Paul. Maybe you're here this morning thinking it's good for somebody else. 
It's just not good for me. It works for other people, but it won't work for me. You don't know my heart. Paul would say, but I know mine. I know my heart. I know the sin of my heart. And I know I didn't want God. But God opened my eyes to see the glory and beauty of a mercy that originates in God's heart. Do you know the mercy of God? Do you reflect often on the mercy of God? Does it strengthen your soul? Do you feed on the gospel? I hope you do. Because you will not herald it. You will not protect it. You will not defend it as you should. Except there's an overwhelming sense of why me? Why the foremost? Why the worst sinner I know did God save? Let's stand together and pray. This morning, help us, Lord, to to just reflect in our own hearts. If there's any iota of, of the sense that God's pretty fortunate to have me, Oh, God, help us. But at the same time, if there's a sense in which I don't have any testimony, God, help us. Because both are rooted in not seeing our sin as we ought and not seeing the mercy of God the way we should. God, help us. Help us to to feed upon the glory and beauty of this entrusted message to us of this deposit, of this gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.